Welcome to the Sheila Come Extract podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure today to welcome Philip Roger. Philip is a lawyer and senior partner at Fana Legal in the United Kingdom. I had the pleasure of working with him in Guinea uh, in respect of the large iron ore deposit at Simandu. Philip, uh, welcome. It's lovely to have you as my guest today. Thank you, Sheila. It's lovely to be invited to be part of this uh, podcast as well. Um, That's wonderful. So, well, I mean, it seems self-evident, but when one thinks of uh, agreements uh, that uh, are necessary for developing minerals, why is it necessary to to have agreements? Uh, from let's start with the investor's perspective, and we'll move to the state. Okay. Um, the key ar- around agreements across all sectors, but in particular in the in the mineral sector, is that it sets out the the, the expectations of all the parties. So it, it really sets the scene and creates, if you like, the background to the overall project. It will set out um, what should be done, the party's expectations right from the beginning, initiation in a mining project from uh, discovery through to production, and post-production, i.e. processing. Right. So so really it creates the blueprint and it says these are the parameters around which uh, this development will take place, how it will progress, and how when we reach the end, we will deal with those issues. Now, from a, an investor's perspective, why is it necessary to have that clarity up front? The, the key thing around um, large-scale mining projects is that the they are very capital intensive. So from an investor perspective, they're actually using a lot of um, financial resources, either equity or debt, if they're raising money through the markets. And that, that money goes into country, goes to developing an asset, um, proving up the asset and, and, and moving it into exploitation. And that that money, by definition, is basically invested into the ground in the host country. And so it's not like any other kind of investment where, you know, the investment might be moved from one jurisdiction to another, depending on, you know, tax um, logistics or whatever. With a mining project, the investment is fixed in the ground in the country. And so from an investor perspective, what's really, really important is is, is setting out some form of uh, framework around which that investment can be protected. All right. So so, uh, in in many ways, the investor is taking a risk mitigation uh, uh, approach in saying, here I am, I've found a deposit. Now I'm going to invest. And in investing, I'm literally locking money in a country. And so to do so, I need a clear sight of what the terms and conditions that protect me against any risk are. Would that be about right, uh, Roger? Yeah, it would. And, and, and just kind of perhaps building on that, there are a few things that an investor will be looking at um, specifically. Firstly, um, having and we one of the most um, sensitive clauses on a, on a mine development uh, project uh, agreement is what we call the tax stabilization clause. And it, it creates a lot of 
um, negotiation between host governments and, and investors. But what that clause is about is creating some form of comfort for investors that the tax rates will not move uh, in a dramatic fashion, because if they do, it affects the whole um, return on investment, the IRRs of the project, because tax has, has can have a significant impact. So an investor will be looking for some form of comfort that there will not be major changes in taxes. Now, from the government perspective, I know we're talking about investors, well, the government obviously as a sovereign, it will also want to have the ability to have some flexibility around tax, around its own tax policy. Um, that's what governments are there to do. So ultimately, there's always a, a kind of tension between the investors' legitimate concern to have a stable tax regime and the government's legitimate concern to be able to uh, charge taxes as a sovereign entity. So um, let's deal with that tension then. So how, how is it normally uh, resolved? Because you, you are right, one cannot uh, prevent sovereign states from the freedom to adjust taxation. But at the same time, uh, there has to be some assurance of some stability when we look at the economics of the mineral we borrow and then we determine what the fair rate of return looks like. So how do we normally deal with that tension in terms of uh, provisions in an agreement? Okay, I think what, what's very important, of course, is that both parties are well represented by lawyers who are, and, and, and professionals who are experienced in the field. But the the key really is to avoid the what used to be known as um, freezing clauses, where the investor would attempt to actually prevent the government from changing its tax laws, which is clearly uh, something which no investor should be asking for, to clauses which were much more nowadays much more nuanced in the sense that they will say, well, in respect of this project, government, you can change your taxes. Of course you can, you're a sovereign entity. But when it comes to this specific project, we as between private entity and government will agree a special tax regime that well, insofar as this project is concerned, X, Y, Z taxes will not change. So that tends to be the way it's dealt with. Um, the other thing of course is, in terms of modern governance practices, um, there's all, almost always in a well-negotiated stabilization clause, there are exceptions for things like environmental policy, um, uh, uh, security type issues in terms of um, uh, safety concerns that if those rules can change because obviously governments need to be able to be keeping very much modern legislation on, on in relation to those matters, environmental, human safety, uh, human security, regardless of the, the impact of that that might have on, on, on the on the costing of a project. But it has to be said that those ten, ten, those types of taxes tend to be not material in the context of, 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 uh, of an overall big big ticket project. Absolutely. So uh, apart from, say, this uh, clause, from a, a, a government perspective, when we enter into these agreements to develop mineral resources, what might be the other things that the government, uh, apart from tax, would be particularly concerned with? Yeah, as you say, tax is the big one. Um, and it's been you know, a lot of governments and, and investors will be highly focused on that. Clearly, the government needs to ensure that it gets a proper tax take and the and the investor wants to ensure that it's not going to be taxed in a manner that's going to affect the return on investment. 
But other factors from the government point of view tend to be, if you like, the nightmare scenario for a government is that an investor comes in and for whatever reason, they don't develop the project. So the project is, is in some form of form of paralysis and just doesn't develop uh, according to a, an agreed time frame. So what the government will be looking for are commitments in relation to development of the project in accordance with a pre-agreed timetable with um, contractual provisions which will enable the government to enforce um, the, 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 the obligation to develop a project in accordance with a pre-agreed timetable. Of course, you know, with exclusions for things like force majeure or events which are beyond the control of either party. But the government will want to be able to hold the investors' feet to the fire uh, in terms of developing the project so that they don't just sign up, you know, the agreements, take the licenses, and then, you know, sit on them and, and don't develop the project. Because that, you know, what, what are governments there to do? The governments are there to basically ensure that the mineral resources are properly developed, are properly exploited. Why? So that they can generate revenues, which can then be dispersed in terms of, you know, um, helping the, the, the populations of the country, developing infrastructure, uh, developing um, all, to, all the kind of things that government should be doing from health, education, um, and, and other kind of public services. Lovely. So it seems counterintuitive, uh, Philip, that a, a company would go and, uh, you know, explore for a mineral, find a deposit and then sit on it. What are the circumstances under which it might be deemed strategically sensible to just sit on a, a, a deposit and not uh, bring the mine to production? Oh, there are, there are myriad reasons, but you're right, Sheila. Fundamentally, this is a situation that shouldn't arise, but it has in, in practice arisen uh, in the past. Um, it shouldn't arise because, of course, investors want to, should want to develop a project and also make a return on the investment. Um, so, you know, one, one, would, one would imagine, therefore, there's an alignment of interests. But a reason why, for example, might be difficulty in raising finance. So an investor may not um, go forward um, with, you know, they might be, um, for reasons unbeknown to them, market conditions, um, financing conditions, banking conditions are such that they can't raise the money um, to develop the project in the way that they had anticipated. Or um, it may be that the, the, the cycle of the minerals market is such that the mineral uh, price um, is, 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 at, is at a low point and therefore an investor would rather basically try to sit on the investment uh, in, in in and wait for the for the for the cyclical nature of the of the commodity price to have risen in order to improve the returns on investment. Yeah. So if 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 one were to step back and just think about uh, if you wish the map of uh, types of agreements, it, it seems to me that there will be those that relate to a need to comply with the law. And then there might be those that have to do with the commercial space and maybe even the financial uh, space. Could you give us a sense of generically the types of agreements that form and, 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 and shape the entire uh, development framework? Oh, <laughs> yes. I mean, obviously, 
the type of agreements really depend and vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction in terms of the nomenclature and the nature of the agreement. But in broad terms, we'd be looking at, um, there are various levels, if you like, of, of, of or, or layers of um, legal norms which apply to a mining project. So first of all, you'd start with the if you like the constitution of a country, then you'd look at the mining regulations, the mining code or the mining law. Then you may have um, subordinated legislation, so regulations from that. And then you would move into the kind of contractual sphere, which is what we were talking about. And generally on that contractual sphere, you would tend to have, again, jurisdiction dependent, a broad agreement, uh, maybe called a um, a mining convention, it may be called a, a mine development agreement, it may be called a concession in a civil law country, but effectively it's the kind of agreement that sets out the end-to-end the -end parameters, kind of what we were talking about earlier, setting out stabilization, uh, setting out the, 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 the obligations of the, of the investor uh, to develop the project, to um, invest in local content, um, to um, you know, local employment, uh, beneficiation, the type of things that governments would be looking at. And from an investor point of view, setting out stabilization provisions, setting out uh, exchange control. So the ability, I, I mentioned that the money goes into country. What's important for an investor, of course, is that the money comes out of country. So exchange control and free convertibility and repatriation of cash, being able to hold cash on offshore basis for, or be it for, for, for um, banking purposes to be able to take security all of those type of things would be in a, a broad framework type agreement and then at another level you would have a, another level of agreements again depending on the project which would be agreements which may be for example relating to the sale of the mineral um, there may be agreements in relation to the mining of the mineral a kind of a management contract contract management if the the investor is not a is not going to be operating the mine itself. Uh, there may be offtake agreements, which will be key from a financing point of view, I, a, an end purchaser of the product who would commit to buying that product, which would then give a cash flow, which then could be effectively secured for funding purposes, uh, insurance um, to ensure the, 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 the project would be also important, again, from a financing point of view. Uh, there may be marketing agreements, um, logistics. So, um, you know, being able to move product depending on whether it's a landlocked. Um, so you may have logistics, infrastructure agreements around building of rail, uh, ports, or around transportation and freight. Um, the, on, a, on a conventional mining project, a large scale mining project, you can literally run into hundreds of agreements. Yeah. Um, but the, the but the main one is is what I've described as the as the as I say the framework agreement or the the mining convention the, the the mineral development agreement whatever you want to call it it will set out the overall blueprint and you know as I said the the kind of expectations of both parties it's almost like the football field and the rules of game this is what we play on and these are the rules to which we will play and yeah. everything else kind of follows on from that yeah it's uh uh, as you speak, uh, I suddenly realized I asked the lawyer a question you should never ask the lawyer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but the point you are making really is that uh, it, it is very project specific because the project defines the scale 
the project defines the country and the jurisdiction in which it's taking place uh, and the laws of that country. It defines, it tells us also uh, the type of company, its capabilities, uh, its needs. It, it tells the location versus the markets. And that when you put all that together, the necessity to create, as you said, that uh, those clear rules of engagement legally, and also you know, that's sort of what's going to finally determine the type of agreements. But you make mention of the uh, offtake agreement and the fact that it's key to being able to engage financiers. Can you elaborate a bit on that, uh, Philip? Yeah. Uh, this is one of the, 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 the what one hears in, in big, big kind of um, mining projects or even medium-sized mining projects, which are funded by banks. The word that always gets kind of banded about in negotiations is this, the magic word of bankability. What makes a project bankable, inverted commas? And lawyers use that term and bankers use that term. But ultimately, in simple terms, it means what is what are the what are the requirements for a bank to be able to fund a project on a debt basis? Um, and that is, you know, what is there? What is the bank's requirement in terms of um, the coverage, effectively the security coverage that it needs? When I say security, I mean the ability to take security mortgages or charges or pledges. Um, to be able to ensure that it feels comfortable, that it can it, it can receive, um, it can enforce rights in the event of there being a default. Um, now, this is a very, very uh, tricky area because, of course, banks don't want to, the last thing a bank ever wants to do is, is enforce the security because then suddenly it's having to run a project that uh, banks are not there to run projects, right? So they then need to, it becomes an awful lot of work for them to be able to take over that type of thing that's not their job. Their job is to lend money and, and make a return on, on, on the lending activities. Um, but the bankability, one of the key aspects of the bankability is looking at the project cash flows over which security can be taken. So the bank can effectively say that money in a default situation can be paid directly to me to be able to repay the senior debt, the amount I've lent to the investor. And one of the key sources if not the key source of revenue for a project is clearly the revenue through the sale of the end product, the, the mineral or the, or the processed uh, mineral, depending on the, the type of project. And that cash flow is generated by what's known as the offtake agreement. And one of the key aspects around bankability, and it's a phrase which again has been heard time and time again, is what's known as a take or pay obligation which is key in terms of bankability, which means in simple terms that the, the off-taker, the customer, the end customer, or it may be a trader, so it may not be the person actually using that ore, but they're buying the ore to resell it, but that person, the off-taker, will agree to pay a minimum amount for the product, whether or not they, they buy it or not. In other words, they're paying a guaranteed sum regardless of the amount of product they're taking. Of course, they have every incentive to take the, the amount of product for which they're paying. But the key point here is that it provides stability of cash flow. The bank will know that regardless, come rain or shine, come 
that the, the, the offtake is going to pay an amount. And why does the bank interest in that? Because that amount then enables the project company, uh, the investor in essence, to be able to have sufficient cash flows to pay off the interest uh, on, on the debt and, and whatever principal requirements, principal re payment requirements there are. So, and obviously from a banking perspective, from a bank's perspective, the offtaker is therefore putting its balance sheet on the line. I'm going to pay you this money. And from a bank point of view, they will make, want to make sure that that offtaker has sufficient balance sheet strength to be able to be good, to be able to um, pay that obligation. So if it's an offtaker, which is, for example, an SPV, a new company or a company which is uh, very lightly capitalized, that will not make a, pro a, a will not make a project bankable. It has to be an offtaker with sufficient financial wherewithal for the bank to know that the offtaker is good for the money. Mm. So, so it in in very helpful and and in many ways, uh, it it tells us several things. You, your response: one that actually contrary to what the public or governments may think. The mineral developer is entirely dependent on banks for finance. It's not as if they themselves provide the finance. And so whatever agreements they make with governments, they have to take cognizance of how they lend in the ear of those who finance them. But you're also saying the same applies at the uh, downstream of that, which is to say whatever offtake agreement the mining company enters with, it has to stand to scrutiny as far as uh, the, the project bankability uh, goes and as far as the financier uh, is dependent on that of taker to be able to pay. And, and, and so I guess just looking at it from that point of view, one can see how there are so many interested parties, and yet in the public domain, we tend to just see the government and the miner, don't we, uh, Philip? Yeah, and as I mentioned, absolutely. There, there's a whole constellation of people involved in, 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 in these projects. Uh, I also mentioned earlier, for, for example, insurance and the, the, the role that insurance can play. That can be credit insurance in terms of having insurance coverage for payment um, on default of, of loans. Uh, to forms of kind of sovereign um, insurance around expropriation. So that would be kind of meager type um, insurance coverage, all of which are fundamental um, factors for a bank in terms of considering whether it believes that a project is bankable, i.e. is it prepared to lend into that project. So there are there's a whole raft of considerations that need to be taken into account. And, you know, from a government point of view, and I've been on both sides, both on the side of the government and, and investors. So I kind of see the tension between, you know, what an investor will require and, and, and the government's kind of expectations as well. And it's trying to be open and transparent about these, um, you know, what both sides need. It's, it's a case of any relationship. You need to be open um, as much as possible as to what your needs and expectations are. And, and an example of that is, for example, uh, is, is you know, step-in rights. So you know, a bank will want the ability to effectively take over and step into the rights of the investor in the, in the default situation. It's the last thing a bank wants to do. It's the, it's, the, it's the ultimate end recourse, but ultimately it's fundamentally important. 
That also means from the, I mentioned the framework agreement, the mining convention concession, call it what you will, that the banks will, in certain circumstances, want the right to be able to take over the position of the investor so that the government relationship ceases to be with the investor, but is with the bank in that type of default scenario. That's quite difficult for a, a government, um, a state to get its mind around saying, well, I've chosen to deal with X, Y, Z investor. You know, I've done my due diligence on them. I'm comfortable that they have the technical financial wherewithal that should be part of the, the issuance of the mining permit after all. But then suddenly they find themselves confronted and dealing with a bank that they have no knowledge of. So it's, it's understanding the, the, the intricacies of projects and who plays what role at what stage. Yeah, you, you put your finger on it. This ability of governments to perceive even the unstated and the implications of some of the agreements without them being explicitly spelled out. And, and I, sh I should ask you then, uh, especially that you've been on both sides of that negotiating uh, table, how much is this lack of understanding, if at all, by governments of these other, if you wish, vital but not necessarily visible players. How much of that lack of appreciation of the entire ecosystem is part of the tension between these deals with um, mining companies and governments? I think it's uh, it, it, it's it, it's it's got back to what I said at, at the beginning, and that's the importance of these kind of frameworks and setting the scene very very clearly. I think sometimes governments can uh, really underestimate the. The complexity of deals and we'll look at things i mentioned you know their desire to ensure that they hold the investors feet to the fire and ensure that a project is done you know according to budget on time but without realizing the 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 um the financial as well as sometimes frankly the the, the technical particularly if it's a it's a if it's a you know a a large scale project in an undeveloped part of the world, the logistical and technical issues around that can be absolutely monumental. So it's un, it's, it's both parties understanding where the other is coming from uh, is key, as with any relationship. And, and governments can sometimes underestimate um, the challenges. And frankly, sometimes investors could be better at explaining to governments what those challenges are rather than it's always temptation particularly a temptation particularly at the early stage of a relationship for um, both parties to gloss over if you like the difficult conversation so for an investor to kind of you know breach the the from the from 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 the, from the you know um the chapter of you know the sunny uplands and this is going to be fantastic and you know we're going to do this and we're going to do that and glossing over the challenges uh whether they be financial or technical and for governments similarly just to really underestimate um you know what can go wrong on a um multifaceted project because they are fraught with difficulties uh, and they can be very technically and financially challenging yeah I wonder, uh, Philip, as, as you look at the world of uh, transition to clean energy and the importance of uh, decarbonizing the mining industry, are you observing any change at all in the way 
any of these agreements have been approached either by the governments or the mining companies, or for that matter, financiers? Are, are we seeing any impact in the overall tone and structure of these agreements? I think it's, it's a really interesting point you make there, Sheila, because I think there is very much, we're at a transitional phase within the, or a, a kind of phase where green energy and green issues are becoming more and more important. Now, banks take these issues very, very seriously around, in terms of their own uh, lending requirements. So the, the development banks have always been very 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 focused on environmental issues and and green uh, energy particularly is 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 right up there as a, as a, as a key concern um from from a from a if you like from a financing point of view that is therefore one of the key criteria to being able to lend into a project to make sure that there is an efficient use of resources and effectively using as much renewable uh, within um, and it, within mining projects as possible, and, and some mining projects again depends on the projects, but some of them can be very high, you know, energy um, intensive, and there you get into one of the things I, I kind of touched on earlier, and that is, if you like, the what governments will be looking at in terms of um, the overall package of what a mining company may be doing, and that may be, for instance, looking at generating hydropower which not just for the project itself or wind power not just for the project itself because it's required for the project but also then creating local generative capacity for other uses um, whether that's local population or other industry as part of a, a general economic development plan but the the focus is very much on um, decarbonizing and using green energy and renewable energy as much as, po as possible. And in many of these countries, there is huge scope for both um, uh, solar, so PV uh, technology, uh, wind, as well as um, hydro. So well, it's, it's, it's right up there. Yeah, it's good to hear. And 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 I can see how the banks uh, would essentially uh, be insisting on those because of course it, it has bearing on their own carbon footprint and it has bearing on the sentiment of the markets and their shareholders. Here's uh, a, a last question for you, Philip. I mean, you know, we, we assume of course that once we enter agreements that everybody complies, that nothing happens, uh, that uh, leads to some kind of dispute and yet ever so often it does happen. So it brings me to the question of dispute clauses and, and the role they play potentially in stabilizing, but also in ensuring some kind of order should there uh, uh, some dispute arise. What can you tell us about the importance of these uh, clauses in these agreements? You know, I'm going to give you, as a lawyer, probably an answer to this question um, which at first will might appear to be a bit surprising. Um, I firmly believe that if you get to a situation within a mining project or any project for that matter, where you're grabbing the agreement and looking at the dispute clause, you've already in a sense lost the game. So the dispute clause is the ultimate last resort and it should be considered as the last resort. And I would urge 
investors and governments on both sides of the table to negotiate, mediate, uh, do whatever they can to avoid arriving at a, you know, a formal dispute resolution clause, which would generally be some form of arbitration. Because once you're there, what you've done is you've kind of crystallized um, a, a, a conflict between the investor and the government. And that conflict, once it's crystallized and once you're within a, an arbitration type forum, will take years and years and years to uh, resolve. And at the end of the day, that doesn't really um, do anybody any good. Of course, at the end of the arbitration, there will, there, there will be a decision one way or another, and uh, then there will be a winner or loser. But ultimately, if you start looking at the world in terms of winners or losers in large-scale mining projects, I firmly believe that's not the way to look at it. You should be trying to align interests and looking at, you know, the Chinese always use this phrase, win-win. Uh, but I think there's a lot of merit in that phrase. But giving, if you like, the more technical legal answer, arbitration, uh, international arbitration, um, generally ICSID, which is a World Bank um, forum, uh, which has sovereign backing, is probably which protects investments, is one of the favoured um, fora for um, arbitration. And ultimately, uh, that's where investors will be looking for some form of out-of-country international arbitral forum where they know that ultimately there will be neutral, uh, there'll be a neutral arbitrator and where there will be an effective um, enforcement regime. And that would, as I say, generally be ICSID, sometimes um, ICC, but in any event, the uh, the international investor will be looking for international arbitration. That's fantastic. Well, uh, Philip, that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I'm certain that uh, my followers will find your uh, answers and insights very helpful. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sheila. It's been a pleasure.